Sometimes we need a reminder of what investing is all about today on Industry Focus. Greetings, fools. It's uh, Tyler Crow here. I'm actually by myself in the studio today. I guess a couple of people got freaked out by the D.C. storm. For anybody that is north of D.C., New York, Boston area, you're probably being like, yeah, this is pathetic. But hey, it's D.C. It's what happens. So as we've seen over the past couple of weeks, oil prices have been losing their minds. Uh, commodity markets are in turmoil. Everybody's talking about China. Uh, the, we have the Davos summit. And I'm sure that we could talk about a whole bunch of things like that uh, on this podcast. But today we decided to do a little bit different, just kind of shake things up, because we wanted to do a reminder of what investing is all about. Um, you know, we talk about stocks on prices, uh, things that can impact them over the long term. But when you're investing as a long-term investor, you're not just buying a stock. You're buying a company and you're buying the people behind that company. And so you need to get to understand the people who work at this company and how they operate. And looking at that can be a much more effective way in picking the great stocks that are going to generate returns for you over the long term. So in that sort of vein... We wanted to give you a little bit of a different opportunity this time where we're going to give a pre-recorded interview uh, that my colleague Sean O'Reilly did back in November uh, with the CEO of Distribution Now, Now Incorporated, uh, Robert Workman. Uh, it goes through the various questions about the strategy at Distribution Now. It's spinoff from National Oil Well Varco a little over last year and just some general questions on being a CEO and what it's like to be a leader in the energy sector. So here it is in its entirety, and we'll hope you enjoy. Um, you guys have positioned yourselves as a very unique player in a niche market. What can you tell us about what Now Inc. does with uh, uh, the oil industry, how you're positioned, and how you see the marketplace currently? So um, our our customer set's pretty 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 wide. It's a huge variety. So we go we service drilling contractors, uh, manufacturers like Cameron and the others that. Uh, make products for the industry, uh, the service companies like Halliburton and Slumberjay. Uh, we also, our biggest customer sets are our operator customers that are the ones that are doing all the, the exploration, uh, midstream providers like a Kinder or, or, an, or a Energy Transfer, and then downstream facilities like chemical plants and refineries. So we have a really wide uh, customer uh, set within the energy space. And then we provide a broad array of products and services to that entire customer 30, 000, base. Thirty thousand, right? Oh yeah, it's actually more than that. But yes, we you know we don't growing grow, every day. <laughs> growing every day. Um, and then we're located in most every, almost every energy producing country. So we're in twenty three or four something countries outside of uh, the U S. and Canada. So we uh, we've we've expanded greatly since uh, since I took over in one. Uh, and we're going to continue that going forward. So a little over a year and a half ago, you guys were spun off from National Oil Well Varco. Um, just real quick for uh, our listeners, what can you tell us about the advantages and disadvantages of being separate from the uh, the, the former parent company? Uh, the advantages are pretty pretty clear in that when you're a group at NOV, you can imagine when Pete was CEO of NOV, he had several divisions, and obviously the manufacturing groups generate pretty good EBITDA margins right. compared to a distribution company, whether it's us or a Granger or a Home China. Depot, right? Yeah. And so as we generated cash, he had to put that cash wherever it would best benefit NOV shareholders, which is pretty easy to put it in rig or somewhere else where you're getting the, the big returns. So, you know, we weren't able to reinvest in our business to the same degree that our competitors were that were standalone distribution firms. So the big advantage to us is now we have kind of control of our own destiny. Um, we're able to make decisions with our balance sheet and our cash generation that benefit solely D now. The only disadvantage to being away from National Oval Varco is that, you know, most of us, 
you know, started with the company either as Old West Supply or National Supply. And so there's a little bit feel like the parents kicked you out of the house right. theory, except for the fact that you know we brought Pete Miller with us. He's with us here, and uh, and we brought Dan Molinaro, who's been the uh, the uh, treasurer for NLV for the last two decades. Been there 45 years. He's now the CFO, and then Raymond Chang, who was the general counsel of the assistant general counsel and corporate secretary at NLV, is now our general counsel. So we took our entire core management team that's been running the business forever plus some. So there's really no disadvantage in not being part of NLV, but you know they they were an amazing parent for sure. And you guys are definitely not small by any stretch of the imagination. Um, so given you know the shift that's been occurring for the last year and a half, has the strategic vision changed with Now Inc. at all? No, like I mentioned earlier, the, the entire core team that's run distribution since 01 is the core team that's across, yeah. the, across the way over here at the headquarters. So we've always been a really tight-knit leadership team that you know established the vision and our goals and our, our mission as to what we want to accomplish. So that hasn't really changed. Um, the only thing that's changed, really, is we have more access to capital because, right. you know, as we generate, uh, you know, returns, we're able to reinvest. Um, so, taking a step back, just uh, uh, looking forward, actually, um, change does not seem to be, uh, I'm sorry, stagnation does not seem to be a part of your company's DNA. I've looked at multiple presentations. You guys talk a lot about um, constantly looking for new products to offer your customers. Um, what are you guys doing there currently? Well, you know, we represent a lot of manufacturers. We don't manufacture products in our distribution business. And so our, our suppliers or our manufacturing partners are always investing, investing in R&D to either enhance the current product lines, expand product lines, create new products. And so those are always constantly coming into the business. Uh, the biggest thing that we control that uh, will affect um, doing business differently with our customers is really this group that we call our supply chain division. And that's where we just become an extension of the customer. So generally a branch carries a lot there of products. Really give and take there? There is um, on on the regular non-committal business, okay, which would be like a branch supporting you know three hundred customers in one given territory. Um, the, the thing I was trying to describe that's different for us now is we have this this group that's growing rapidly, where we we actually have a whole team focused on one customer only in their facility. We remove duplicate SGNA. The capital employee comes off their balance sheet. Our systems are integrated. Everything's electronic with the customer, and so we become that's really really a partnership. That's beyond partnership. Yeah. We're in their headquarters. We're in their operations. We're on their platforms, and all the capital employed on the platform is our capital employed. So the customer's not duplicating it with our branches. So it's a it's a model that, especially in this market, when customers right. are trying to improve, you know, reduce expenses and improve capital employed on their balance sheet, uh, are really eager to uh, explore and expand. So we have a lot going on in this space right now. Uh, so moving on to more of uh, 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 what you guys do with M&A, um, National Oil Well talks a lot about how effective and efficient they have been you know, for decades at um, acquiring companies, integrating them. They talk about the playbook and everything. Mm -hmm. um, did you guys take the playbook with you? <laughs> well, you know, don't forget we did a lot of M&A, um, at least from 01 when I took over through um, – 14 when we spun. So we had done, I don't know how many dozens and dozens of acquisitions. Right. So we used the same playbook that NOV did. The only difference really is we've, you know, it was our part of our DNA. That was our school. You know, right. if you think about going to school to learn something, we went to NOV school to learn to do acquisitions, both targeting them, valuing them, and integrating them. The biggest difference that we've made since spinning is that, you know, NOV's playbook includes like 5,000 sheets on an yeah. Excel spreadsheet, right, with all this stuff you got to do to make sure you integrate properly. We just automated it with software. So now all teams have access to the same date at the same time, day one. We're, no more, we're not duplicating requests to the company we acquired, just bombarding them with the same request right. over a month from five different functions within the so it's quicker company now. it's this it's more qu it's quicker it's more efficient it's more effective um, but but general that's that software that we use is just a more efficient way to use the playbook so Got if you it. went over there you'd probably see the NOV logo on all of our 
Playbook pages. Oh my gosh, so like just photocopied dozens of times. Uh, well, no, we just took it yeah. with us. Cool, very good. Um, so speaking of acquisitions, you guys have made two recently. Um, Challenger Industries and Odessa Pumps and Equipment. Um, if you could, you know, without getting too deep, talk to us about how that's been going, how the integration's been moving on, how happy you are with the acquisitions, all that. Yeah, so um, we've completed nine through Odessa, and Challenger's yet to be closed, but it should be. You know, we, we got we got approved by the by the government. We're just doing some due diligence around some other items, but um, they're so I can't tell you how well they're doing this very second because they're not part of the company yet. But they do fit a really targeted market for us, which is we've we've always wanted to expand our participation in the midstream market mm-hmm. and in the downstream industrial market. We're in both, but right. we wanted to grow our participation. So Challenger's well known for for my customers for being excellent service providers in that space. Um, Odessa Pumps is exciting. We had some facilities in the original distribution group at NLV that would design uh, pumping systems for customers and fabricate skids and put them on with prime movers and put them out in the middle of the field to move fluid around yeah. oil or gas or, or whatever. Um, Odessa Pumps brings an entire array of product line that they that they've assembled over their their time frame. That's you guys way did more not have before. did not have. That's wow. way more expensive than our stuff. You take what they do really 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 well. And they're in only in the they're only in, in the Eagleford and the Permian and the Midcontinent yeah. and a little bit in New Mexico. You take that skill set and their product line expertise, and you plug network. it into the rest of the distribution yeah. network. You can really grow organic share pretty pretty rapidly. That was, a, I assume, a big part of the rationalization for the acquisition. Oh, absolutely. We we, we have some pro, you know we have just general products, pop valves and fittings and safety goods that just anybody can distribute. Maybe not to, to the same degree we do because we have more leverage, but we have other product lines that are a lot more value added that give the customer a lot broader solution at our company and we have like an artificial lift and electrical and valve actuation and we've always wanted to expand our, our pumping solutions and this is a great way to get to get a good leap on that awesome um so uh we're uh we're obviously in a bit of a downturn right now a little bit uh, just a small one a little bit it doesn't happen a lot um obviously acquisitions and just adding to your product line are part of your company's dna um, how much, given you know, the downturn of your acquisitions in the past and going forward, have been product-driven or just kind of plugging this into our distribution network would be awesome, or, it, uh, or more opportunistic, like this is really undervalued now because the market crashed and we can get a good deal on these guys? Yeah, so uh, we have a saying uh, at NLV that's definitely still said here, which is uh, if you fall in, love, fall in love with a deal is the best way to bring a company down. Okay, Got so it. we have lots of... of uh, companies that fit our, our, our intended capital allocation strategy, which is energy branch expansion outside of the U.S. and Canada, because there's a lot of market out there to be had. Um, our product line solution expansion, whether it's what I mentioned earlier, valve actuation, electrical pumping, or whatever. Um, uh, growth of our participation in the midstream and downstream market. So we have a really uh, focused area around where we want to allocate capital. But at the end of the day, it's got to be valued the right way, and it's got to be creative, or we're not going to do it. So there's been lots of deals we've looked at since we spun in June that would have been what I would call in your category of we've got to have it. Uh-huh. We just didn't get it. I mean, wow. just the bid ask spread was too big, yeah. and we just, our discipline that we've been learned, we've was been trained a, through at NOVs, just not gone away. So. Yeah. Was there an element of um, like flying blind with the bid ask spread and everything? Because this is not the first time that I've heard that. Uh, you know, with, between the energy companies we've talked to this week. Flying blind in that. Yeah, just the bid-ass spread so nobody knows quite, you know, the... the, the well, we know what we're willing to pay, and we know how we're going to value it. Now, what they're thinking is, you know, I, I can't control. So um, we've, we've had some acquisitions that we missed out on that would have been, you know, sizable for us and really a really a good fit around our strategy that um, went for considerably more than we would ever value a distribution business. So right. 
how those other companies made those determinations is up to them. I don't have any idea how they came to that conclusion. Yeah. Um, so uh, in a lot of your investor presentations, you talk about um, how acquisitions are valued at current profit and losses. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, obviously, probably gone, you know, skewed toward uh, more towards losses in the last year. Um, Obviously, if you could get it at uh, you know the bottom of a, a downturn, obviously in the upswing, it, it becomes even more valuable. Yep. Um, how much pushback have you seen? How much um, apprehension have you seen in potential acquisitions being like, we, we don't want to sell right now? Well, obviously, uh, you know, we, we started up our M&A effort in earnest after we spun in June of 14. Trying to hit the ground and, running. Yeah, yeah. Because we'd really turned it off the right. two years prior. We had so much going on between the integration of Wilson and C. Franklin and spinning and the SAP rollout and all that stuff. Um, when, we, when we re-engaged, um, in that time the market was still really hot. Right. And so, you know, the, the bid-ass spread was like the Grand Canyon. It started to shrink um, early this year. Um, in fact, some of the companies we pursued last year are no longer in business today, and we could have got it for inventory value, but there's really no reason to do it because right. I'm just going to pick up the revenue. Right. So, so we actually passed on deals um, that we'd offered, you know, our normal valuation for last year. So it's getting smaller. People are more and more interested, and I think you know most firms are out there trying to figure out how long, what, how many, what's the length of the legs on this downturn, right? And I think I think you know if you listen to Slumberjay who just had their call and or Halliburton, that's actually what I was about to bring up. Yeah, or Halliburton, they they don't agree either. Halliburton yeah. says we bought him in in first quarter of next year. Slumberjay says it's a 2017 recovery, and then everybody else is somewhere in between. So I think as people learn and believe and come to the conclusion that this downturn's got quarters and quarters and quarters left in it, if say it does, because no one ever knows, right? Um, some opportunities for companies we've gone after we weren't successful with will be a lot more likely to occur. Wait six months, yeah. Um, so moving on to a few uh, questions, we actually uh, asked our foolish investing community about a few questions they might have for you guys. Um, the first one is: You've stated in the past that you had a goal of reaching eight percent EBITDA margins down the road. Are you still on track to reach that number? And if not, why? Okay, so so we d- we accomplished that prior to acquiring Wilson and C. Franklin, and so our belief was once we got integrated, and got on one platform, and got rid of all this duplication of of overhead, that there was no reason why a larger company couldn't reach the same number, same ratio we right. got to as a smaller company. And I've always I've always gotten pushback from shareholders going, well, does that mean you have to do acquisitions to get there? And does that mean you have to grow revenue by some billion dollars to get there? And I'm always like, no, at this revenue level, we can get there. It's going to take some work and some effort. We got to get on, you know, on one platform and get rid of, you know, all this additional expense. But, you know, it has to be at least this revenue level unless we change the nature of our business and restructure to be a much smaller company. So, um, definitely, we have to get back to our, our revenue level we were when we put that goal out um, back in June 14, which is 4.23 yeah. billion of, of rev. Um, and I think we can get there. In fact, the downturn just helps us get there because it's you know it would have been tooth and nail fighting over expense reductions uh, after we went public yeah. in a hot market. And yeah. this market's kind of just taken care of it for us. So you know we're we're down. Welcome to Wall Street. No. Exactly, <laughs> we're down. We've we've reduced expenses already in this downturn more than we ever thought would be possible. Right. Um, and actually, I do have to compliment you on not only your cost-cutting initiatives, but also your your balance sheet. I mean, this is it's a work of art. Um, it's actually not. We've done think? a great job of taking off the balance sheet, and it's horrible. You're not satisfied. I like no, that. not even close. We said on we said on our last call for Q2 that we thought we could take another 250 to 300 million off by the really? end of the year. And I think that I would be disappointed if that's all we get. That is good to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, you've done a great job uh, funding acquisitions with working capital. Um, how much further could you keep doing that before you st- uh, start having to tap other funding options? 
So um, you're right. So we finished we finished uh, Q2, still net cash, I think, not by much, but still net cash um, after but completing. Win's a win. <laughs> yeah, yeah. After completing a lot of acquisitions, and it's all come from the balance sheet. So obviously, we need to tap other funding options if based on the size of the deal. So if we keep doing 100 or 200 million dollar deals. Well, likely still going to be cash positive in the coming quarters. Yeah. Um, we also have a line of credit that's largely untapped, that's $750 million unsecured. And we've got a $250 million revolver on top of that, which is available to us. Yeah. So we have plenty of, plenty of ways to tap. Obviously, the size of the deal would dictate whether or not we're able to fund it from cash or from revolver. We, we don't, we, you know, our shareholders want us to get some leverage, which we yeah. have none. I'm trying. I'm probably the only person in the energy industry right now trying to get levered. Um, and so we're, we're doing our best, but we don't want to get you know, any more than 20 to 40% debt to equity. Yeah. We just don't. So I still have to spend, I don't know, what, a billion and a half dollars to get anywhere near that number? So we have, you we have, have to really try. We have plenty of <laughs> runway, you know, if, if, if the right deals come up. But if the right deals don't come up, you're just going to see our balance sheet not get levered. You don't hear that every day. I have to spend a one, one and a half billion dollars. Just to, to get barely yeah. levered. Keep trying. Um, so uh, moving on to general industry outlook, um, obviously everybody in America, everybody on CNBC, newspaper, everybody's talking about what's going on with oil. Prices are down 60%, natural gas is at 2.5 you know, or something. Um, how is the operating environment, you know, from your perspective, what are you hearing from your customers? Well, most of our customers are, are not real clear on, on what they believe is going to happen in the market. So we were, we were at a, an event just last night with one of our biggest onshore and offshore customers. And they had four, four senior vice presidents there. And you get a different answer from each of them. One does onshore, one does offshore, one does drilling and completion. So no one really knows where this market's going to go. There's so many things that can change the oil and gas market. They're outside of your control beyond supply and demand. Uh, but I think we're yet to find this out because this is our first time to be in a downturn since the development of the shell plays and the technology for, for you know, extracting yeah. oil, and, oil and gas out of those, out of those plays. You know, I, I really believe that o, that U.S. has become the new swing producer, taking it away from OPEC. I really yeah. do. I mean, because we can shut it down quicker than they can, and we can turn it on quicker than they can. So, I think what you'll find is we may, you know, as we we have always had cycles in this industry. I was born and raised in the '80s in West yeah. Texas, so I got to see the '80s, you know, as a as a kid, and then had many since then. How does that compare to today? Uh, the uh, I thought the '80s was the worst it could ever be. Yeah. No. And because it went on like this decline is six, worse than anyone in my lifetime. Really? And I was born and raised in the oil fields. This is the worst of my career um, with respect to the de- to the sharpness of the decline. Yeah, and even the if you, even if you compare it back to 09, yeah, we dropped faster than 09, but we way faster. Yeah. Then we recovered to the same dip in 09, and then we went this way when 09 went this way. Yeah. Okay, so this is definitely the most challenging environment I've ever been in. So you know, I, th- I think what's going to change in the states is I think you're going to see possibly more severe. Uh, cycles that are more compressed yeah. which honestly would be a benefit to us because most of our competitors can't manage through those kinds of cycles well not only that but it puts a burden on um you know e&p companies to you know increase efficiency that means improve products technology mm-hmm. all that no doubt about it and it's and it's gotten a lot more efficient uh in the last three years than it's ever been i mean uh, one of our customers cited that their well costs have dropped from 12.5 million to 6 million yeah and they're still dropping right no it's getting crazy um so what you know? Just comparing this, I'm really interested to talk about um, the 0809 downturn, where we you know went down to 37, then bounced right back up, and then you know, all that. Um, compared to today, what are you seeing in terms of um, capital budget cuts from your customers? What were they doing then versus what are they doing now? So customers typically announce their budgets 
around this time frame. You okay. know, this month or next month or whatever. Most of them are saying they're not putting them out till January, February next year. So it's still so they're holding out. It's still them. questionable. Um, I think Q4 um, for anybody in the oil service space could be worse than could be the worst quarter for sure. In that you got budgets running out because people are trying to live within their cash flow. Yeah, and you got the holidays. So you put all that together, it could be a pretty difficult quarter for anybody. In fact, I think Halliburton, Slumberjane, Baker are all saying the same thing as well, that, yeah. that Q4 could be a really difficult period. Just the question is, does it recover in Q1 or does it recover in 2017? And I don't think any, anybody that thinks they have the answer to that question uh, is fooling themselves. Is lying, yeah. Um, so uh, looking at your more recent results, a lot of your customers have, um, you know, you're just your, you know, now's margins. A lot of your customers outside the United States and Canada, there have been – it's been small, but they're still operating profit margins. Um, have you found that uh, you know international, you know, foreign, actual countries, or have you found that um, customers outside North America are more willing to write out this downturn in terms of what they're willing to spend? No. Um, what happens? It's such a different dynamic because most of our customers outside of Canada and the U.S. are largely driven by decisions made by national oil companies. Right. Many of these national oil companies have a lot of social programs, okay? So they can't, like Venezuela or Saudi Arabia or Mexico or you yeah. name it, okay? So they don't have the same uh, drivers for decision-making that, you know, somebody in the States and Canada would or offshore Gulf of Mexico. And so, and most of their projects are big projects. These are projects that you just don't, like if, if, if the oil price comes up to 70 bucks, yeah. somebody in Bakken is going to put 12 rigs back to work tomorrow morning. Right. Okay, if if someone in the Gulf of Mexico or someone offshore Venezuela or offshore, yeah. it takes years to get that project started, and then when the oil price crashes, you don't just turn it off like you can just lay down a rig on right. a land play. So they're just lagging everyone else because they can't react as quick as a land play can. Um, so we've seen this, you know, more than sixty percent drop in the uh, U.S. based rig count, you know, just onshore. Um, do you anticipate a major drop in production? coming up in the next six months once that actually gets felt. It's, it's, it's not a really difficult thing to, to calculate. If you, if, you look, if you look, right now what's happened is production growth is dropping. Right. Okay. So production is dropping, but it's still, it's still over prior quarters, prior years, because yeah. it's coming down, but it's still higher. What's the word? They started to roll over is what they said. Yeah, exactly. Um, so if you look, if you, just, if you just extrapolate that decline rate, for sure we're going to have some serious declines in the uh, offshore play. Well, the, the one swing factor uh, in that is that Used to the total cost of, of, of drilling a well and producing oil and gas, the biggest expense used to be the drilling contractor. Right. Has been forever. Now that's it's no longer the case. Now it's the service company that's doing the completion work, the frack job. Okay. Right. So what customers have done, which is inconsistent with any other downturn I've ever been in, is they're still drilling some wells. The rig counts down sixty percent. I'm gonna be wrong, but it'd yeah. be down even worse if it weren't for this new phenomenon. They're drilling and not completing. Drilling and not completing. There's drilling and not completing. So there. if oil comes up to sixty bucks, sixty-five bucks, seventy bucks, all they gotta do is get the frack spreads back out. Okay, and they can have production on, on that fast. So you could see a spike in production, a drop in prices, a stop, a drop in production, and a drop in prices. I mean, who knows what we're gonna go through? We have right. a completely new world out there. Um, that we've never experienced before. Um, so let's just pretend that happens. Oil pops up 70, 75. Um, you guys, you know, you're not an oil production company. You supply more than 30,000 products to the guys that do that. Um, how long before you start seeing the benefits of them getting those rigs back on? And so the worst thing about this business is that when the market declines, we're the first to fill it. Right. Right off the bat. I mean, it. 
the minute the rig goes down, it stops buying. The minute that the operator stops drilling, they stop doing ba tank battery hookups. I mean, we feel it immediately. Where other companies have backlogs, like NOV. Right. That was one of the best things you asked me earlier. What's what's good and bad about not being yeah, part like, of NOV? Really the good part about NOV is they had a ten or fifteen or twenty billion dollar backlog. So when the market went down, we didn't have to react that fast, right. and we could make more conscious decisions about sustaining our future that didn't try to make people happy about our performance in a given quarter. Right. We don't have that here. Okay. We have no backlog. So the worst thing about this business, it drops first. The best thing about this business, and it reacts first. So there was a little blip about three months ago where oil got to 60 bucks, uh -huh. and about a dozen or so rigs went back to work in the Permian. Those they rigs parts, needed need. thirty to $40,000 worth of parts well, within 24 hours yeah. to get those rigs going back to work. Which is about you know six weeks of consumption ish right. on an operating rig, and it didn't reduce their consumption, so they consumed like normal, but they needed all that upfront stuff. So, you know, the the worst thing about this is I'm gonna have every CEO of every land contractor calling me at my house, complaining at night when they try to put 500 rigs back to work, right. and I don't have enough stuff to supply those rigs to get them back to work. Wow! So you had a lot of uh, a lot of the employees were burning the midnight oil. Well, if 12 rigs we can handle. Yeah. Okay, but if you have a real recovery, yeah. we're gonna yeah. Um, so uh, moving back out to uh, uh, you know investors, um, what are three things that a potential investor, maybe a current investor in now, you think they should know about how to properly evaluate your business? So I, I would I would say there's four things you should hold our feet to the fire about. Okay, one is are we growing share organically? So okay. so that's why on our call I, I call out what's revenue per rig without acquisitions and what is it with acquisitions because the minute that we get into having to buy revenue growth you know you got some problem okay yeah. doesn't mean every single quarter we're going to grow organically but we need to have a trend that says we're growing organically two is are we regardless of what's going on in the market are we managing our P&L in a way that we're improving all of our ratios whether right. it's EBITDA margins or net income or whatever three working capital this this business's biggest risk in the world is working capital okay that's it so I don't need, uh, I don't have much capital employed in this business other than receivables and inventory. And so how we manage our working capital as a percent of our revenue is really important. And fourth, you know, a big part of our story is the fact that we have a super clean balance sheet and we're going to allocate capital for M&A. And are we, are, we, are we allocating it consistent with our strategy that we've communicated to the whole investing public? And are we, use, are we doing it wisely and with discipline? That's the four things I would watch on us. Uh, so before we wrap up here, again, thank you so much for your time. Um, just a little bit more of a lighter question. Um, uh, at The Fool, we're big uh, fans of Peter Lynch, obviously a very famous investor. And one of the things he loved to do when he sat down with a CEO was ask him what other CEOs, inside or outside their industry, that they admire, that they like to learn from. Who do you admire, inside or outside your, uh, your industry, that uh, uh, you admire? There's several firms um, that impress me with respect to how their team leads their organization that are distributors, actually, not necessarily competitor to me, so maybe that much of a competitor, right? Right. Uh, out there, but the one that I learned the most from was the NOV team under Pete. I mean, right. think about it. We had, there was five of us that, that were on that team or so, I think it was five, and most have gone on and are currently CEOs of large public companies. Right. Okay, so, you know, something went right there. Um, and just how our team worked together in different businesses, doing different things with sometimes similar customers, um, was my learning ground. Outside of that, I really, I really lean back and and spend a lot of time on some of the teachings of people like Peter Lincioni and Jim Collins. I mean, I have leadership team meetings every quarter with my staff. We spend a half day, full day, just going into those types of areas of leadership development and as a team working through these exercises and you know having debates about how we apply it to our business and principles. So really, it's either these executive 
coaches or these executive experts, yeah, or it's what what I've learned for 15 years at NOV as being part of the leadership team there, facing all sorts of challenges and capital allocation and market swings and everything else. Well, there it is, folks. wanted to say thank you very much for listening this week. I know it's a little bit different, and I hope you gain something out of that uh, interview. I know I, it was one of the things when I was actually in the uh, behind the scenes. It was certainly a lot of fun and a whole lot of interesting tidbits that certainly made me as an investor in a company like Distribution Now much more confident knowing the people behind them and what they're thinking rather than just looking at it as a piece of paper. So if you're a loyal listener and have questions or comments for us, uh, just email us at industryfocus at fool.com. Again, that's industryfocus at fool.com. And also, we have just completed what is what we'll call the best of 2015. It's a recommended reading list of all the best articles that appeared on The Motley Fool all over the entire year of 2015. We had more than 20,000 articles, and we picked you know, probably the best 30, 40, 50 of them for you. And if you want to check those out, just email us and we'll send you a copy of all of those for your reading pleasure. And as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy our stocks based solely on what you hear on this program. Thank you very much and we'll talk to you next time.